that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then skipping to chapter 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and the striving after wind. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, we thank you that despite its, in many ways, its darkness, there's light here. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us this portion of your word to benefit us, to profit us in following Christ. And we pray it would do that now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The author Walker Percy was born in 1916 in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Percy grew up there and when he was a young teenager, he was 13, his father died, actually committed suicide. And a couple of years later, his mother was killed in an automobile accident, which Walker Percy always suspected also was suicide. He and his two brothers uh, came under the care of his uncle uh, in Greenville, Mississippi. And from then on, lived out his teenage years in Greenville. In many ways, it was providentially one of the best things to happen to Walker Percy uh, to be under Uncle Will, William Alexander Percy himself, an author, uh, because he was introduced to books, to the literary world, to reading, and to writing. He was also introduced to a neighborhood kid there in Greenville who became his lifelong friend and fellow author, Shelby Foote. The story is told of the two of them going up to Oxford to visit William Faulkner. And Walker Percy was so intimidated by Faulkner that he stayed in the car while Shelby Foote had a lively conversation with Faulkner on the porch of Faulkner's home. Well, Walker Percy went on to the University of North Carolina, finished there, went to medical school at Columbia University in New York, where he finished in 1941, uh, began training in pathology, and contracted tuberculosis as he was doing an autopsy. 
and uh, recovered sufficiently to return and had a recurrence of tuberculosis. And so uh, during his convalescence, read Kierkegaard, uh, Dostoevsky, and others, and became convinced that science did not have the answers to the deepest questions plaguing mankind, and so resolved to turn away from medicine to become a writer, or as he himself put it, uh, to take up, uh, deal with problems of the soul rather than problems of the body. Uh, Walker Percy is known for a number of books that he wrote. Perhaps his most well-known, uh, maybe kind of a signature work, was a book called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book, a work of nonfiction, uh, reflected Percy's tendency uh, to become something of a philosopher. He also had become a committed Roman Catholic, uh, but a reviewer of Lost in the Cosmos said that Percy in this book was thinking about who we are and how we got into this mess. Uh, and the reviewer writes, what mess? Basically the fact that everything we engage in, science, art, pleasure, politics, war, is conducted without any real knowledge of what or whom we're doing it for. We've lost sight of ourselves. When we are children, the reviewer goes on to write, we see things more or less as follows. Cows are to give milk. Mountains are to climb. Cars are to ride in. Germs are to be sick with. Children draw houses with a face at every window. How could there not be a face? Windows are to look out of. And people? Policemen are for helping us cross streets. Farmers are for growing food. Fathers are for making a noise in the shower and going to work. Mothers are for smelling nice and maybe going to work. As we grow older, our perception of the physical world becomes more complex. Man, lacking a sense of himself, lacks any sense of relation to the cosmos, Percy suggests, and is therefore capable of perpetrating almost any foolishness or horror upon both. Artists and scientists are okay as long as they're out exercising their transcendence. When they come home at night, they are as screwed up as anybody else. The beauty or knowledge that they are quarrying does not enlighten them much. It is a familiar enough notion back through Socrates and Ecclesiastes. Percy does not actually suggest that man can know himself only through some kind of a religious faith, but he does not leave much of any other possibility either. Ecclesiastes, as we discovered last week, is about life lived under the sun. That is, life lived without any relationship to God, any acknowledgement of God, a life without transcendence, a life lived merely on the horizontal plane without any glimpse upward to the God who rules over all, to the God who is there. And as a result, life is bleak. Life quickly becomes devoid of meaning, of purpose, of any real or lasting value because there is no one there to give it value. There is no one there in which meaning might be anchored. Meaning is merely what we create in our minds, which is where many people are. You're familiar with the word postmodern, perhaps the essence of postmodernity is each of us creates his meaning in his own mind and therefore there can be no meaning overall, overarching that applies to everyone. Of course, 
to say there is no such thing as a universal worldview is itself a worldview that implies universality, so like many fallacies, it is self-contradicting. But the point is, Ecclesiastes looks at life apart from God, and it recognizes we come up empty. Now, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11 that serve as something of an introduction to this book. Uh, In the passage before us, we explore the whole topic of wisdom or knowledge and knowledge uh, as it applies to wisdom. The writer explores this whole question that maybe meaning is found in the pursuit of knowledge, in the pursuit of wisdom, applying right knowledge in the right way so as to live wisely. And maybe that will give meaning to life. And so we read in, in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, we are sort of forced back to the question of who is the author of Ecclesiastes. He's identified in verse 1 as the preacher in Hebrew, Kohelet, or Kohelet, Kohelet. But who is Kohelet? Who is the preacher? Who is the one speaking? Well, it's verses like this, verses like 16, that have led to the traditional view that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. And I would not rule that out. That is certainly a possibility, and there's enough identification here with Solomon to, to certainly indicate that it's coming from his point of view. However, there are other reasons based on things that are said in the text or implied that it may not be Solomon who is the author. Now, if it ever said Solomon, the question would be settled, but it never claims Solomon by name. However, whether it was Solomon or not, there's no argument that much of it, especially here early on, is told from King Solomon's point of view. After all, Solomon was the epitome of the wise man. You recall how the Lord came to Solomon and offered him the opportunity to ask of the Lord what he would have. And Solomon, as a young man, recognizing the weight of of reigning over the people of God, over Israel, asked for wisdom, for who can, who can rule, who can rightly govern this nation of yours. And so he asked for wisdom to be able to govern well, and the Lord gave him wisdom, and along with that gave him great wealth uh, and influence and power, and, and Solomon was renowned for his wisdom. And so Solomon is certainly represented here uh, for his wisdom. We read earlier Proverbs 1. Many of the Proverbs are directly from Solomon and attributed to Solomon. Uh, The point, however, here is that ultimately the author is the Holy Spirit, and uh, the author is identified as the preacher, whoever he might be, Solomon or someone else. But certainly these are represented as being the experience of Solomon, one, because of his wisdom, two, because of the resources he had to explore wisdom and other areas that we'll look at in the coming weeks, Lord willing, such as uh, work, such as pleasure, and these other areas that he explores in an effort to find meaning. Well, today, uh, we're looking at the question of wisdom, and as we look at this passage, we'll see that under the sun, that is, without any regard to God, wisdom in and of itself is empty. It's empty. First of all, look at what he says in verse uh, 12, 13. Uh, Wisdom is tiring. Wisdom is tiring. Look at verse 13. 
And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, when he says, I applied my heart, and then later in uh, verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. When he says, I applied my heart, he's saying, I gave myself to the work of discovering these things. Similar to Paul's writing to Timothy about the work of the ministry, and he says, devote yourself to these things. Give yourself to them. Follow them committedly. And that's what he says here. I, I applied my heart, my whole being was wrapped up in the pursuit of these things. To seek and to search out. To seek, the word has the idea of looking for with care. To inquire into. To conduct research. It's as though Solomon could say here, I did a doctoral dissertation. I spent time, I spent much energy researching, investigating, looking into these matters to seek and to search out. It's the same word that's used in the book of Numbers when the spies were sent into the land to search out the land, to survey it, to look over it, to see what's there, to write down their findings, to make a report, come back with what they have learned. He says, I seek, I have searched out, I've gone and spied out, I've done reconnaissance, I've surveyed the scene to see what is there. One commentator says, the scope of his enterprise is incredibly extensive. Everything done on earth. That's pretty ambitious, isn't it? In this way, he implies that his conclusions admit no exceptions or possibility of reversal once further facts come to light. In other words, he's confident based on the thorough nature of his investigations, that no one is going to come along later with some fact he has yet to discover that will undo it. He applied himself. He set himself to seek and to search out by wisdom, or we could also translate it wisely, everything that's done under heaven. He read the books. He visited the libraries. He went, well, he didn't go online. They didn't have that. But if they did, he would have done that too. As someone once said, that's not evidence. That's a website. Uh, nevertheless, you can find some good information online. He would have used it if he had it. No, that's the point. He investigated every avenue. And what was his conclusion? Was he liberated? Was, this, was he filled with joy, with the exhilaration of knowledge? Look at his response. Verse 14, second half of the verse. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. An unhappy business. It's, 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 he was burdened, not only by the effort of doing so, but by what he discovered, that life under the sun is burdensome. Look again at verse 17. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. It's just chasing the breeze. Why is this an unhappy business? Why is this a grievous thing or literally an evil task? Evil not in the sense of wrong or immoral, but evil in the sense of burdensome, of grievous. Because no solution. After all this hard work, no solution is found. The search leads to frustration rather than resolution. Frustration rather than a sense of completion. It didn't make him happy. With all the resources Solomon had, 
to be able to search out and investigate. The leisure he had as king to spend his time poring over the tomes and the volumes and the books of wisdom and knowledge to go out and survey the scene of what the scientists were doing and the philosophers and the artists at every area of human endeavor that seeks wisdom, that seeks insight, that seeks knowledge. He comes back and he just says life is a grievous task. Now he writes under the sun and we might say under a fallen sun because he's dealing with a fallen world. God created the world good but sin entered in. God placed his curse on the world and there is a futility to this world. And certainly to human wisdom, apart from the acknowledgement of God, there is a burdensome emptiness, a frustration to it. If there weren't, the universities, the colleges, would be places of the greatest happiness, the greatest and highest morality. And we know that's not the case. Because knowledge does not change the sinner, it merely creates a more educated sinner. And it's a burdensome task. Knowledge is wearisome. Acquiring wisdom is tiring. Solomon acknowledges. It was hard for him. He applied himself. It was wearisome. It was burdensome. But there's the second thing he, he points out here about gaining knowledge. He says wisdom ultimately disappoints. Not only is it difficult to acquire and burdensome and effortful to acquire to gain, but it also ultimately disappoints. He's hinted at that already, but let's look at what he says in verse 14 and then in chapter 2. Verse 14. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. Remember, he surveyed the scene. I've, I've seen everything. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Turn over to chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Wisdom is disappointing, one, because it... it produces no real satisfaction, no real anchor for meaning. Look at verse 14. He says it's merely vanity. It's but chasing the wind. Uh, when he refers to vanity, he's again using this term that refers to a mist, a vapor, here, now, and gone quickly. It doesn't last. It's ephemeral. It's passing. It's fleeting. Charles Bridges has a commentary on uh, Ecclesiastes. Bridges was an Anglican minister, wrote a great work called uh, The Work of the Ministry. It's a, a very good book. But in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says this, talking about these things, wisdom and so forth. He says, if we attempt their pursuit by making an idol of our gifts, putting God out of his supremacy, we can only expect to add our testimony to their disappointment. Admitting, therefore, the high value of mere intellectual pleasures, their unsatisfying results are grief and sorrow. Now, Solomon does concede that wisdom is better than folly. Now, note in verse 12, he says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He thought about wisdom, but he also thought about 
what benefits, if any, there might be to sheer irrationality, to just go out and live life without thinking, basically live like an animal, as some people do. Uh, and he weighed these things, and he does concede that wisdom is better than folly. Uh, as he says at the end of verse 13 of chapter 2, chapter 2, 13, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. It's better to be in a room with the lights on where you can at least see what's there. You can see the colors and enjoy the colors than to be in a room in the dark where you can't see color, where you can't see what's there, stumbling over everything. That is better, obviously. Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The wise person is like someone who could see. The, the foolish person is like someone blind who cannot see where he is going. He can't see what's in front of him. He can't see what's, what's around him. Verse 14, yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Again in verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So it's disappointing because it's chasing the wind. It's not satisfying. While wisdom is better than folly, ultimately the same end overtakes both. The end of verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. The most brilliant person with all kinds of education, PhDs, contributions to various scholarly and scientific and philosophical journals, a long life of writing and teaching, ultimately is buried in the ground just like some illiterate who never learned to read or write had never contemplated wisdom at all and died unknown they both die they both are buried so what has his wisdom accomplished for him after all of all the labor that went into it all the effort all the energy sleepless nights all of this what has he acquired in the end nothing more than the person who knows nothing or the person who is a complete fool how the wise dies just like the fool the same event happens to all of them as one person put it so what if I get a fine education so what if I pursue a responsible job so what if I order my private world on the basis of good common sense so what if I decide to practice a profession or learn a trade I may live with my eyes wide open raise a fine family plan wisely for retirement but the fact is the axe falls on my neck just like it does on the neck of a fool. I, like the fool, am going to die. And after we die, we are lost in history. Look at verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Wisdom doesn't satisfy while it may be better than folly for this life, it ultimately ends in death just like folly, just like foolishness. And regardless, once we're gone for any length of time, no one remembers anyway how smart we were, how much we knew, what we accomplished in terms of intellect. We do try to head that off, don't we? We don't put tombstones on our grave made out of cardboard. It's granite. Our names, our dates are carved into the stone but perhaps you've seen old cemeteries where even the name in stone is beginning to fade, to erode, or perhaps has already become illegible, lost to time. Well, not only, as he says here, uh, is, is wisdom 
lacking in the ways that he has mentioned. It's tiring to acquire, it's disappointing in its, in its accomplishment, but it's also powerless. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, this is put in, a, in the form of a proverb. In the ESV, it's, it's indented like a proverb, like a poem. And in Hebrew, it, the parallelism, the, the structure of it indicates it's meant to be something of, uh, in a poetic way, to be remembered. Whether it was a proverb that existed or one that the preacher came up with himself, uh, he, he cites it to indicate that with all of his wisdom, he still couldn't do anything. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And it's a crooked world. It's a fallen world. And knowledge itself, whether for yourself or applied to others, ultimately can't fix the problems of the world. What is lacking cannot be counted. You, count, you can't count what's not there. And so you sense the, the powerlessness. It's powerless to fix the world this knowledge of his. It's also powerless to give peace. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. After all of this, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Far from giving peace, more knowledge usually only adds vexation, usually only increases sorrow. You know, the, the, mentioning the internet, it is a mixed blessing because it, along with other media that we've enjoyed, television and so forth, brings all of the problems, all of the disasters, all of the crises in the world right to you. Think of it. 300 years ago, 400, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you knew what happened where you were. And some bad things would happen where you were. But bad things that happened on the other side of the world were things you had no idea of, and therefore, because you were completely ignorant of them, were not your concern or your problem or your worry. But now, thanks to 24-hour news service and the internet, and all the media that we have, every problem in the world becomes your problem because you know about it. And even if you're not responsible to do anything about it, you still may be discouraged by it depressed by it, concerned about it, an opportunity to pray for sure. But we bear a much greater burden today for the world because of what we know than people did in centuries past. That's why Solomon says, With much, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The people who think about life become weighed down by life. The people who make it their effort to know what goes on, to know why things go on, are people who begin to be vexed, who begin to be sorrowful over all of the things like the preacher that they discover in the world. So it's powerless to fix the world. It's powerless to give peace to you. It's also powerless to give joy. Oh, if we only knew more, we'd be happier, right? Well, no, of course not. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is, what's the conclusion? All of this effort to acquire wisdom. I hate life. And he doesn't say I hate my life. He says I hate life. Which sort of implies that it would not be unreasonable for other people to come to this conclusion too. Why? Because it all was meaningless. It's painful. It's wearisome. And ultimately, it is meaningless. Now, 
We need to recognize that, again, the perspective is shutting God out of the equation, looking at life just under the sun. But we also have to recognize that that is where many people are today. People you know, maybe people in your family, people you work with, people you go to school with. Life has only the meaning you give it, and ultimately you get tired of giving it meaning. You come to the same conclusion that the preacher comes to here, and it leads simply to misery, to nihilism. Life has no meaning, so live however you want to. How many of you have heard of the name Humphrey Davy? Well, that just proves Solomon's point that people pass out of remembrance. Humphrey Davy was an eminent scientist in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, he was, he's known and remembered today more than anything else for a safety lantern that he developed that was to be used by miners working in mines. And in fact, it was given his name, the Davy Lamp. His other great discovery was Michael Faraday, the much more renowned scientist who was an uh, intern or protege of, uh, of Davy's. And Davy himself was a brilliant man, probably second to none in his day in terms of intellectual prowess, uh, mental strength. And yet later in his life, he wrote in his journal, very miserable. I envy no quality of mind or intellect in others, not genius, power, wit, or fancy. But if I could choose that which would be most delightful and I believe most useful to me, I should prefer a firm religious belief to every other blessing, for it makes a life a dis discipline of goodness, creates new hopes when all earthly hopes vanish, and throws over the decay, the destruction of existence, the most gorgeous of all lights, calling up the most delightful visions where the sensual and the skeptic view only gloom, decay, and annihilation. Now, I'll quote that, and the point in quoting it is not that, that religion is helpful, some religion, any religion, to make life better. That's not my point. It is rather this, that since we were created to know God, apart from knowing God, apart from taking God into our considerations, all worldly pursuits, including noble ones, like the gaining of knowledge, the acquiring of wisdom, fall flat. They are empty and ultimately will disappoint. Proverbs, as we read earlier, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation. If you don't start there, whatever other wisdom you acquire is without foundation and therefore does not stand. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without it, wisdom collapses. With it, wisdom thrives. Knowledge has meaning. That's why Proverbs 16, uh, verse 16, can say it's better to get wisdom than gold, to acquire knowledge rather than silver. Most of the world today, most of our country would disagree with that. Proverbs obviously takes a much different view of wisdom than that represented in Ecclesiastes, but then Proverbs is written above the sun with a view of God in mind because it starts out by saying the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord. You know, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught us in a passage we recently studied. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The problem is, apart from the fear of the Lord, apart from the knowledge of God and Christ, wisdom is foolish wisdom. It has no foundation and it will not stand. True wisdom begins and ends with Christ. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In verse 30, you could go on to say, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You know, as Christians, we are to pursue knowledge and so love the Lord our God with all our mind. There's nothing wrong with the work to gain knowledge, to use that knowledge to acquire wisdom in order to live wisely. And we are to use our knowledge to live wisely. And so we are to glorify God with our lives. But when wisdom becomes our God, when wisdom is what we look to to give meaning in life, like any idol, it will let us down. We'll fall flat. But wisdom in the service of our Heavenly Father is anything but empty, but meaningless, but pointless. Because wisdom in the knowledge of Christ, wisdom in the service of Christ, counts both for this life and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that knowledge is real. That wisdom is a real thing. And that it has value and meaning. Because you give it value and meaning. Father, we thank you that in a day when there are many highly educated fools running around, that true and real wisdom is available to us in Christ. And Lord, as we study not just the Scriptures, not just the revelation you've given us in the Word, but the revelation you've given us in creation, as we subdue the earth in service to you, whether it's in academic studies in school or in the calling that you've given us in the home or the calling you've given us in the workplace, we thank you, Father, that all that we learn and know, the wisdom that we have acquired and gained and been given by you, counts for something. Because we live life not merely under the sun, as though this world is all there is, but we live life with an eye toward you. Because it is our desire, Lord, through gaining knowledge, through living wisely, to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.